Welcome to Alcohol Across America with your host, Dr. Brad Krever, along with a weekly panel of co-hosts. Our program examines the impact of beverage alcohol on public health and safety, the nation's economy, and American culture. Each week, we discuss current trends and issues. Now, here is your host, Dr. Brad Krever. Welcome to Alcohol Across America, a weekly examination of alcohol in the alcohol industry and how alcohol impacts our own health and well-being, impacts our communities, and impacts our colleges and universities. Today, our focus is on the alcohol industry itself, and joining me is my co-host, Scott Wexler of the Empire State Restaurant and Tavern Association. Hello, Scott. Good afternoon, Brad. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. Well, I'm really looking forward to this week's show where we're going to explore the challenges facing independent alcohol beverage retailers. While most industries are experiencing consolidation with companies taking advantage of the efficiencies created by scaling up, the beverage alcohol retail sector has been surprisingly resistant to that trend. The more than 300,000 alcohol beverage retailers across the country remain dominated by independent business owners, whether they own a single unit or multiple units. The highly regulated nature of the industry has something to do with this, but even where the regulatory environment is more favorable to independent operators, like here in New York where I work, where you can only own one liquor store, so by definition, everyone is an independent operator. They're still up against it, and they're struggling to survive. So today we're going to be joined for this discussion by two guests who can help us understand the plight of these retailers, Warren Scheidt of Cork Liquors and Phil Bradley of the Kansas Licensed Beverage Association. Good afternoon, Warren and Phil. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Scott. Happy to be here. Uh, Invited. Well, you're quite welcome. Let's begin by getting to know our guests a little bit better. Warren, can I ask you to tell our listeners a little bit about Cork Liquors, your, you know, where you have stores, uh, how long you've been in business, you know, so they can appreciate your perspective. Okay. Uh, Cork Liquors, excuse me, Cork Liquors consists of uh, 12 uh, units located in south central Indiana, so basically about halfway between Louisville and Indianapolis, Indiana is where we are located. Uh, we're located in three different communities, Columbus, Shelbyville, and Greensburg, Indiana. Uh, we are a three-generation uh, family business, and we opened our first store in 1982. So we've been, been around a little while and uh, seen a lot, of, a lot of changes in the industry. So three generations. You're the second generation. Is that right, Warren? Right. I currently have uh, my son, my daughter, and her husband uh, also work in the business as well. From my experience um, with independent operators, particularly liquor store owners, uh, family-owned businesses and a continuity from from generation is not uncommon, is it? No, we have, uh, in Indiana, we have quite a few members who uh, who are second, third. I have a friend in a store in a community south of me. They are on their fourth generation in the business. So, uh, and around the country, we see the, the same thing. Uh, in, in several states, we have, in ABL, uh, we have several 
members who are multi-generational owners. So it's not uncommon at all in the, in the package store business. Now, I mentioned earlier at the start that here in New York, a liquor store owner can only own one unit. You mentioned you can you own 12 units right now. Um, how does that work around the other states in the country? How common is the New York experience versus your experience in Indiana? Uh, I think there's a pretty a common mix of both. I would say it's probably more common to have less numbers, but... Uh, uh, there are several states, Indiana, Texas, just to name another one, uh, where I know you can have as many as you want. For instance, uh, and size-wise and how we compare, our stores range in size from 2,500 square feet to 13,000. Uh, the average store size in Indiana is probably around 3,000 square feet, which is probably common for a, a lot of stores uh, around the country. Um, we have a lot of people who own just one store. We have one one chain in Indiana that has 55 stores. But the common thread is they are still all owner-operated uh, by Indiana residents, and the owners are typically still very much involved in their business. That's um, that that's a very key point, and I I think. Uh, That'll that'll um, be something that we'll consider a, a little bit later on in our discussion. Phil, um, I'm familiar with the Kansas Licensed Beverage Association. They're an outstanding trade association representing on-premise retailers. But uh, can you help our audience understand who your members are and what types of businesses they operate? Thank you, Scott. Yes, uh, we have members over all the different tiers of the industry, and hopefully we can discuss what those tiers are later. But primarily, we deal with the what's known as on-premise. So you would know them as places where you go and buy a drink and consume it on the premise where you're at. Hotels, restaurants, clubs, catering services, that's primarily our demographic. So let's let's help our, our listeners understand the three tiers before we get too deep into the conversation, Phil. Uh, you and Warren uh, represent and work with folks in the retail tier. Could you walk us through the, the three tiers so folks can follow along? Certainly. The tiered system was developed post-prohibition when, by definition, anyone that was selling in alcohol in the United States was a criminal. After prohibition, you were not, and they wanted to make sure that there was no way for you to have multiple licensees up and down the industry and control the whole market, which would then might lend itself to criminal activity. So you have those folks who make alcohol, you have those folks who then distribute the alcohol, and then you have folks who sell it to uh, the consumers. Now, some states, Scott, have four tiers where Warren in that state, in Kansas, is one of those, would also sell his alcohol to the on-premise tier, which is a lot in our state, and that makes the fourth tier for the on-premise. That's really helpful, and, and we will come back and talk about those tiers, and particularly how um, I'm curious to if what your and Warren's experiences or some of the changes uh, carve out from those tiers, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Phil, um, you're the executive director 
of uh, the KLBA. Now, when I tell people what I do as an executive director, I, my most favorite explanation is I'm the chief cook and bottle washer. But I guess that doesn't really, that tells them that that we do an awful lot of things, diverse, we have diverse duties. But uh, what does your, what do your responsibilities include? Well, I, I like your answer, but I, what I normally tell people is I do whatever my members tell me to do. And that can be everything from uh, helping them through a regulatory situation by being their voice in the capital, or it can be as simple as going out and helping with functions. And then I also lobby for them. So I'm up there advocating for them. So at every level, when they need help, and I also have some background in business experience, so I do some business advising for our membership. Yeah, you are, um, uh, if you were a baseball player, we'd refer to you as a five-tool player. I'm not sure what what the term is in association management. Um, well, I've been when referred I come to up, as a tool before, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> um, Warren, you mentioned, you made a passing reference. I was going to ask you about this later. You made a passing reference uh, to the ABL, the American Beverage Licensees, and of course, uh, the three of us have met through our work with ABL, uh, Nas- the national association that represents liquor retailers. Warren, as a past president, would, would you like to give us a, uh, a description of who the ABL is, who the members are across the country, and, and, and what it does? Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, ABL, American Beverage Licensees, is the primary uh, body that represents package liquor stores and uh, bars, taverns across the country on and off-premise retailers. Uh, They do not represent uh, the states that are uh, state-owned businesses, uh, and ABL is not in every state uh, otherwise, but uh, it has a wide range of state members across the country. And its primary purpose is kind of like what it, what you executive directors do in your state. Uh, ABL lobbies and represents uh, its affiliates across the country to better their businesses and and speak for them in Washington D.C. on a national basis. And another, um, I, I know an awful lot of what the ABL does is it provides an opportunity from leaders in the retail trade from across the country to interact and network. And I think it's it's uh, that exposure that uh, Phil and Warren have had this afternoon uh, will lend us a, a national perspective broader than just uh, the, the, their unique role in Kansas and uh, Indiana. So let's uh, let's get started talking about the those real issues. Um, Warren, uh, you mentioned that uh, a typical uh, liquor store in the membership out in Indiana is about three thousand square feet, and, and I would say that's not unusual for us here in in New York either. Um, but we're now seeing these new larger warehouse type liquor stores opening up. Um, how? Uh, are you experiencing that? Is is that something that's happening in Indiana? Uh, and and if it whether it is or isn't, you know, can you share with us how liquor uh, package store owners are are dealing with this newfound uh, uh, segment of our industry? Sure, uh, Indiana doesn't have some of the very large national chain package liquor stores that 
are prevalent in a lot of other states. In Indiana, we have laws that that have uh, residency requirements. So, in order to have a packaged liquor store or a permit in Indiana, you have to have you have to be a resident of Indiana for at least five years. But to the to the point of uh, of effect, I wish I could say that uh, you know. In other states, uh, since Indiana doesn't have it, I will kind of comment on other states that they, I wish I could say that they didn't affect the small single store owners, but uh, they are definitely adversely of, of affecting them. Uh, for instance, a, you know, a typical stereotype mom and pop operation has a, you know, has a very difficult time competing against the buying power and selection uh, of a big box liquor store, uh, but it's not just. But this problem for mom and pop operations, it's not just liquor stores. Uh, the effect of national drug stores, national grocery stores, and chain stores are just as devastating to to the small mom and pop units, if you will. Uh, it's 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 about the buying power and selection uh, that the big national chain stores have, uh, which makes it very difficult. Uh, years ago, Indiana helped this situation of the mom-and-pop operations by, we instituted a, made it legal for any number of stores, mom-and-pop units, any any store with a permit, with, the state allowed them to form together and to make a, a, a buying co-op. So if there is a large deal available to uh, to myself with a multi-chain operation, a group of single-store operators could band together and buy as one unit uh, and th- thus make it possible for them to compete with me, which is okay, or to, or to form even larger ones. We have co-op buying units with 50, 60 members in them. So they're able to compete with uh, the big box operations, the the grocery stores, drug stores, that type of, of business, uh, and it has been very successful uh, for the for the smaller unit operations to to stay in business. So it's been a a good deal for them. It has also been a good deal for our membership and our state associations because a lot of those. Uh, people who join co-ops and work together see the benefit uh, of, of that, and our association was 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 instrumental in making that come to pass. So it's been uh, for association-wise, it has been a a good deal all the way around for our members and and store owners throughout the state. So we're already seeing uh, the benefits of what a trade association does. Um, in regards to protecting its members and helping and and, and helping it, um, we're having that same issue here in New York, both on uh, and off premise operators. Uh, even um, while we have uh, all single store owners here in New York, uh, we've seen a tremendous um, uh, growth in single store warehouse type operations, which um, create even though they're just a one-store owner, they create the same economic um, uh, challenges that, that you were suggesting. 
And uh, I, I recall from talking with our colleagues across the country, uh, this is this is just one of the challenges uh, that our liquor store uh, friends are struggling with. Um, we will um, look forward to hearing more about uh, that. Um, we'll be uh, taking our first break. And when we come back from our break, we will continue the discussion with Warren and Phil and talk about some of the other challenges facing independent retailers. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Responsible Retailing Forum is a leader in the industry, bringing together public and private stakeholders, regulatory and enforcement agencies, attorneys general, public health agencies and producers, and community leaders and researchers in order to identify and promulgate best practices for responsible retailing and engage the stakeholders in examinations of responsible retailing policies. For more information on RR Forum or its partners or how your community can get involved, please visit rrforum.org. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Alcohol Across America. We'd love to hear from you with questions and comments about our program. Please send an email to crever at rrforum.org. That's K-R-E-V-O-R at rrforum.org. Now, back to Alcohol Across America. We're back with Alcohol Across America with our guests this week, Phil Bradley and Warren Scheidt. Phil, independent on-premise operators are facing growing competition from chain and corporate operators. Is this a challenge for your members, and how are they dealing with it? It is a challenge, and one of the first things I quite often have to explain to people, even some of my own members, is why should the public even be concerned? Isn't that just business in the free market system? And you have to take a quick look at history before you can answer that question fully, and the legislative leaders of our country decided that alcohol is a substance that needs to have some regulation on it, needs some control. It can be dangerous if left to open markets. If your neighbor makes your whiskey, it might be dangerous for you to consume. And if your enemy serves alcohol to minors, you could be in real trouble. So it requires regulation. 
And those regulations help us keep a safe environment for our citizens. That being said, those regulations in the past have been a covenant between small operators and the government. The government said, we will give you the exclusive right to hand out, sell, and use this consumer to the consumer. And what we want in return is we're going to give you a very strict environment with huge regulations on it that will be make it difficult for you to operate your businesses. That was a covenant. We went along fine. All of a sudden now, some of the regulations are changing, allowing more open marketplaces and larger groups breaking the promise between the government and the original small retailers. And it's dealing with that that is the biggest problem we have in that regulatory environment. For us and our members, it's the same thing Warren said. It's the competitive buying power, but more importantly, it's the deeper pockets. When you have a large corporation out there that just opened a a restaurant next to your restaurant, they have deep pockets for advertising. They may have decided they don't need to make a profit for three years uh, in order to establish themselves in that marketplace and may allow them to undercut your prices on food and things. It's a challenge, but our members seem to be rising to that challenge. It makes it so that uh, the faint of heart and those that are not really in the business to learn and grow find it a hard environment to survive in, Scott. Yeah, no, I, um, first of all, I, 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 you hit it, you really, you really hit it spot on, Phil, um, a typical independent operator comes into the business uh, not nearly as well capitalized as perhaps they need to be, and certainly without without the ability to sustain a, an extended period of 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 getting started in a uh, in a community, um, and the corporate operators don't have that uh, uh, that challenge. Um, Warren is. Uh, are there corporate liquor store chains uh, across the country? I know you mentioned because of the residency rules in Indiana, um, it's not really an issue. But uh, I seem to recall there are some uh, large, l- large corporate chains in other states that are creating a problem, a challenge for operators. Well, that's right, Scott. And, and technically, I fit the definition of a corporate liquor store chain with, with 12 units and and them being in, incorporated, uh, I guess I'm technically there, but there are many like me around the, the country that fall in that category. Uh, but also control that, states also you know, may place marketing restrictions which equalize this uh, buying power out in many cases. For example, I mentioned the buying power of co-ops uh, that can be uh, help a single-store unit compete with myself or or a multi multi store chain. What the when the problem comes is in is the, the very large uh, multi state uh, national chains, package chains that can use the pricing uh, the pricing the, the buying power, the the pricing uh, really predatory pricing and private labels uh, to push their products and retail in a fa- in a fashion that small operators can't do and probably really wouldn't want to do even if they could do it. Uh, so, so yes, to answer your question, uh, the big some big multinational 
chain, multi-unit national chains are are a big issue uh, for a, a lot of small units across the country. And this has happened in numerous states, uh, not so much in Indiana, but in many states across the country. Well, Warren, I, I guess, yes, technically, um, you you fit the definition of a corporate operation, but at least uh, not the practical definition in, in my mind. Um, right. For example, at least the independent operators that I've met, a single unit or multi-unit, um, there, there's, because they're uh connected to their communities, uh, as opposed to being located in a faraway place, they tend to to be more uh, part of their community. They also seem to uh, perhaps have more um, governors on on the activity they will take in order to be successful. Um, And I suppose they could they could be equally as well capitalized as a much larger entity, but even if they are, they tend not to use the capital the way, uh, you know, Phil and you have have, have been uh, talking about. Um, what? But in those states uh, where um, where you do have these chains operating, uh, is there are there things beyond just the mere economic uh, you know buying power? Um, I seem to recall reading something recently uh, about one of these chains challenging the regulatory structure, I think it was in Connecticut. And I, I don't want to necessarily single out the name of the chain because um, it's not, this, it's not uh, in and of itself a good or bad thing. But if, you're, but if you're independent operators who have been following the rules, certain set of rules for all the years, and someone decides they don't like those rules and they want to change it, that can be a real challenge, can't it? Well, Scott, I'll take that one first. Uh, Example, yesterday I attended, we were having a series of state uh, hearings uh, to look at alcohol laws in the state of Indiana. They're having a series of these to look at literally all all the laws that are in effect. And what is happening across the country is, is primarily out of state, corporations, uh, big businesses who aren't satisfied with the status quo, and I'm not saying that things shouldn't ever change, but a lot of a lot of businesses across the country who just aren't satisfied because it doesn't fit their business model have decided to take on the states, and in most cases, at least here in Indiana, they can't win legislatively, so they end up turning to the courts to try and get their way through the judicial system and go around uh, what the legislators who are elected to make the laws for the people of the state uh, use any method they can to get their way, so to speak, and change the laws to to fit their business model. Uh, And that's, in some cases, I can't say it's all bad, but for the most part, those of us who have been in the business, live by the laws that have been in effect, who bought our businesses, made our business models according to the laws of our state, and have been good model citizens, uh, are under attack by people who only want more, and by more means taking it out of somebody else's pocket. 
So yes, it is a it is a, a very serious onslaught across the country from those type of operations. Well, not to continue this thread, Warren, but the um, the effort by some of those operations to uh, seek to allow grocery stores to sell wine or liquor uh, might fit in uh, to that discussion. Um, why are liquor store owners so concerned about such proposals? Well, if, when you're specifically talking about wine, I know that is a huge issue in New York, and there, there are other. That same issue is going on in other states. Some it is, it's all, it is already taken place in Tennessee. I believe uh, Tennessee lost that battle uh, to keep wine out of grocery stores about a year, two years ago. So they have already uh, started seeing that effect, and it's you know it's truly a case of. What what allows a retailer to keep your your doors open uh, in Tennessee? Um, it is it is significantly affected uh, their their marketing, their inventory, and mode of operation, and has drastically caused a lot of changes. They have already lost uh, several store longtime established stores in that state. Uh, Indiana has had wine and grocery stores and convenience stores and big box operations for many years, probably 15, 20 years. Uh, so it, the presence of wine coming out of, if you're an exclusive, if you're a liquor store and you have had exclusive rights to sell wine and it goes to uh, a big box operation, uh, it definitely makes you change your operation to stay competitive. Uh, that's not all bad, but if you're the if you're the business sitting there, a mom and pop operation or a small chain operation, and you're going out of business because of that, uh, that's not very consoling. So, but it does make you get tough and competitive quick. Yeah, I can appreciate that, and it's not on the same level, but at least in my experience here in New York, um, the expansion and the um, modification of the rules to uh, accommodate craft producers um, has been the closest parallel to wine and groceries. These are producers that have their their manufacturers. And Phil, you were describing for us earlier um, the three tiers. And here in New York, at least, uh, there have been uh, numerous carve-outs and exceptions made to the three-tier system, the regulatory structure we're all used to, in order to promote, you know, homegrown New York uh, craft products. Is that something your folks are experiencing in Kansas? It's going on all over the country. The largest growth segment, percentage-wise, is the craft industry, whether it be farm wineries or microbreweries or our artesian distillers. And although I, I see your, your reference to a parallel here, I think it's slightly perpendicular because the craft industry has gotten carve-outs for the most part in general based upon the feeling of elected officials that they are economic development engines, that they create jobs and often create a business and taxable dollars in smaller communities and places that are having trouble, old downtowns, old parts of towns. And 
in that aspect, I think they are doing good work. What seems to be the problem is when states don't go into this fully informed and with good big 30,000 feet view of making sure they don't have unintended consequences. In the state of Kansas, we allow our craft people to do a few things, but not too many outside the tiered system. For example, if a microbrewery, they can sell their product on premise, but if they want to um, sell it as an on-premise retailer, more than just a tasting, they have to get an on-premise retailer's license. That then allows them to sell other products and restaurant food and all those types of things. But it kind of blends the two together. There are some states that didn't go down that route, and they seem to be having a lot more conflict. It does mean that you put the tiers all in one box, but if your state has looked at the rules in a big-picture manner, it can work out but it makes for lots of conflicts as many um, licensees, as in any other industry, visit a state that has more liberal types of allowing for practices to happen and come back to their state and say, why can't we do this here? I need to say at this point that every state's liquor laws are different. All 50 of them are vastly different, and you can't cherry-pick one piece from a state and place it in another one easily. If you want to have the liquor laws of your neighbor's state and you like what's happening there, you almost have to take the whole book of statutes and take the good with the bad. It's a very intricate spider web of laws and regulations. Thank you, Scott. No, it's 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 absolutely true, and 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 I would agree with you. It's interesting sitting in the room with these craft producers who have, for the most part, never been exposed to the to the industry. The the restrictions make no sense to them, um, and it's not even a, a a conversation you can have logically because they, they they just have a different paradigm that folks who have been working in the industry um, and under those restrictions for for many years um, are used to uh, here in New York I, um, I'm sorry I often think it might be similar to the very first conversation in a room since you're from New York in the big city when you have the taxi union and the Uber and Lyft guys across the table from each other talking about hauling people around. Well, uh, we went through that last year, and uh, I don't want to relive that uh, that discussion, <laughs> at least at least not this afternoon with our listeners uh, paying attention. Um, but uh, I, th- I think that's a very good a very good parallel, Phil. Um, and they just seem like us, totally different. Uh, yeah, and that takes us to our second break. Uh, for the afternoon. Uh, when we come back from the break, we'll continue our discussion about the challenges of being an alcohol beverage retailer. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Responsible Retailing Forum is a leader in the industry, bringing together public and private stakeholders, regulatory and enforcement agencies, attorneys general, public health agencies and producers, and community leaders and researchers in order to identify and promulgate best practices for responsible retailing. 
and engage the stakeholders in examinations of responsible retailing policies. For more information on RR Forum or its partners, or how your community can get involved, please visit rrforum.org. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. You hear about it all the time. Compromises, destructive malware, major breaches. You can't turn on the news without hearing about the latest cyber event. Learn more about cybersecurity, how it has become one of the most significant threats to our national security, and the battle experts undergo every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Task Force 7 Radio with host George Redis is the voice of cybersecurity around the world. Tune in live every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Alcohol Across America. We'd love to hear from you with questions and comments about our program please send an email to crever at rrforum.org. That's K-R-E-V-O-R at rrforum.org. Now, back to Alcohol Across America. This is Brad Kreber of Alcohol Across America, joined by Scott Wexler, my co-host, and our two guests, uh, Warren Scheid of Cork Liquors and Phil Bradley of the Kansas Licensed Beverage Association. Uh, Warren and Phil, back in 2009, my organization, the, the Responsible Retailing Forum, was doing research with retailers. And you would think there's an enormous amount of research about an industry so large, but there was really no research on alcohol licensees at all when we started started our work. And in 2009, we conducted focus groups under a, a project supported by the National Institutes of Health. And we were working with focus groups of, of off-premise licensees selling in package stores, as well as on-premise establishments. And as part of the focus groups, we asked um, a very probing question to each of the group. They were, of course, separate groups. And the question was, really, what is the greatest challenge to you and your business model that you face. And the answers we got from the on the off-premise retailers selling in package stores like yourself, uh, Scott, was the answer that our greatest challenge is we might sell to minors and lose our license. Uh, how strong is that a, an issue for you guys today working in the off-premise environment? And is there a, a, a challenge that you face that you think is greater than that today? Scott, would you like for me to go ahead? Oh, yes, uh, please, Warren. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll take uh, the, first, the first part of the question uh, on the survey that, they, that was given. Uh, sales to minors are very important and a, and a serious ongoing problem everywhere across the country. Uh, kids these days are very resourceful. IDs are of excellent quality with laser printers and the type of technology we have today, uh, it is, in some cases, almost impossible to tell 
a false ID from a from a real ID. Um, I would say there's a lot of things that we do and, and other retailers that, that help the situation. We have an extensive training program. Uh, we have server training. Uh, the state of Indiana also has a server training program, but we expand ours to a lot more categories than the state does. Uh, we have secret shoppers. Uh, the state of Indiana sends in, has their own program where, whereby the state excise police come in with minors and see if you serve them. Uh, but part of the part of the problem that I see is that the state primarily focuses on the retailer owner themselves. And I am not in any way skirting our liability or the the steps that we take uh, that they should be lessened they shouldn't be if anything they should be even more strict uh, but if a penalty does occur occur the penalty to the to the person selling the alcohol meaning my employee is much less very much less than than what my penalty is and if you're uh, especially a multi-store owner, and I, like again, I'm not saying I'm not making excuses, but I have approximately 80 employees. We're open some stores from 7 a.m. in the morning till 1 a.m. at night. Uh, you cannot be there every hour of the day watching every employee in 12 locations. Uh, is, even with cameras, uh, you cannot keep track of what everybody does. So what I'm saying is. Uh, probably need to tighten uh, tighten penalties across the board on on everybody, and especially the people that actually do serve. Uh, in this day and time, a lot of them just you know a lot of people don't care uh, if they can get away with it, they'll do it. So it takes a lot of uh, watching on our part for what our employees do, and we're more than glad to do that. That is our responsibility. That is. That is what we accept that liability when we get a permit. Uh, so that's my answer to, to that part. Uh, to the second part, as far as um, what are, what are uh, some... Your greatest challenges uh, now. Yeah, greatest challenges right now. Probably the, uh, the biggest one uh, that we see right now is uh, the potential uh, the potential damage done to, to on-premise by e-commerce. Uh, and, and by that, I would say it's not only to package stores, it's to big box, it's drug stores, and any other entities. But e-commerce uh, is a huge concern uh, for all brick-and-mortar retailers across the country on and off-premise. As you know, recently, I believe Amazon purchased Whole Foods, uh, which uh, in the Indianapolis area, they opened several of their markets uh, back up. And so they now have a local presence as well as an e-commerce presence. Uh, and you, know, you talk about the, you know, the, the gorilla in the room, uh, Amazon is, is above huge uh, when it comes to competition and the business and how they can affect the retail market uh, across the country. 
Thank you. And and Phil, when we did um, focus groups with on-premise licensees who are your members, uh, what we heard is the greatest challenge to them, and I'll just quote the way one person put it. He said, right now, we are now responsible for other people's behavior. What he meant is if someone becomes intoxicated in my establishment, leaves my establishment, well, actually, whether he became intoxicated there or not, if an intoxicated person leaves his establishment, that establishment could be held liable for any damage that that customer caused to himself or to others. How great is the challenge is that for, for you and your members in, in Kansas? And, and are there any other challenges which right now are even greater for you? That is still a very, very large challenge for us. It is spawned what we call dram shop laws, which regulate how you go about that liability and how you have maybe joint and severed liability over that, and maybe more than one place has liability for that individual. And even after that, those dram shop laws have now started putting caps on some of the damages that can happen. Um, that's a huge problem for us. And similarly, the answer to your second question, what is our largest problem now, is is somewhat similar to that. It's, it's the economy and other people is caused a shift in demographics and a shift in how people behave. We have more and more people who are consuming their alcohol in other places, uh, more than just at home. With the economy happening the way it is and our government the way it has, we have more and more not-for-profits who have found a way to raise money for their businesses by having multiple parties and fundraisers that just basically turn out to be bars and cocktail hours. And they do it more and more, and many of them are exempt from the regulations of a regular establishment. In some cases, uh, particularly for political organizations doing the fundraising, they're exempt from the taxes that we have to pay. And if you are faced with an invitation you get that's basically an open invitation to go to this fundraiser for $50 with an open bar or go down to your local bar and spend $50 at a per-drink price, more and more people are opting for the fundraisers and the not-for-profits. So it's a it's part of that with the seemingly um, lower take-home pay, a person understands that he can go to Warren's store and get himself a six-pack and go home and share it with his wife or spouse, and they'll have a, a nice evening. Or he can come to my place, and they won't be able to have nearly as much for the money because it's prepared and served to them. And many people are opting out of the convenience and for the volume. Thank you, Phil. And Phil, you, you actually... Uh, touched off a thought in my mind. I was reading an article recently um, that one of the greatest challenges facing the industry is dealing with the growing trend of folks consuming alcoholic beverages outside of an on-premise establishment. Um, In fact, Danny Brager from the Nielsen Company reports that the key reasons this is happening um, and people are opting to spend more time at home drinking include e-commerce, which in this case, at least, Nielsen thinks is getting people to order liquor delivered to home rather than to having to go out to a bar, uh, prepared meals and meal kits, 
Uh, believe it or not, Airbnb diverting hotel guests from hotel restaurants and bars, uh, more people working from home, and closer scrutiny of the cost value of drinks. Uh, Phil, you just made made that point. So um, how are how is this trend playing out in uh, uh, Kansas and in uh, and in Indiana? And uh, what is it meant to business? Phil, can you can can you get started? Certainly, and it, it is happening out there. All of those reasons you give, and maybe even a couple more, are changing the way our society reacts and consumes and spends. And I would say it's a broader question than even the alcohol industry. When you have bricks-and-mortar retail stores in your streets of your town, and they're trying to compete and sell a pair of shoes, the same that they can get from, since Warren brought up the name Amazon, and or some other company, even a small company in another state that doesn't collect the sales taxes. It's impacting all our municipal districts' revenues. Our school districts, our towns, our counties, our townships are having less resources from those types of sales because there is no way to go after them completely. And we can't seem... By we, I mean our elected officials, to get their head around the question and take some steps in that direction. And it decreases those budgets every year, even though the entire sales revenues are up, the tax revenues are down. Warren, is this playing out uh, in the off-premise segment? Are, are you seeing the benefits of this or merely the disadvantage I would say yes. Our sales are are up. Uh, I don't know that that is uh, across the board. All all retailers, off premise retailers. Uh, but Phil makes very good points when you talk about e commerce and taxes and all that. Uh, those type of businesses have definitely uh, grown at a much larger rate on retail sales than have package stores or the big box operations. I'm, I'm sure you can find some statistics showing that the sales are lower. And I think one of the things worth mentioning is, you know, the pie for retail sales is generally, you know, a set a set item. There are only so many cases sold uh, across the country on any particular item. And in a lot of a lot of instances, uh, re- retail sales are down across the board. I think the craft the craft end of the business is one that is probably uh, showing more growth than any, both in beer, wine, and liquor in the craft uh, segments. But uh, Phil said it as perfectly as anybody could. Uh, all these factors are definitely affecting both, both the on-premise and off-premise. And you know, while it while it we have weathered it pretty well, and a lot of places have, uh, it has adversely affect off-premise retail in a lot of instances as well. Well, in the um, last couple of minutes that we have left, I wanted to ask if either of you want to peer into the future and tell us where you think. Uh, independent retailers are going and what's the next challenge they should be watching out for? Phil LaWarren, anyone want to take a crack at that? 
Scott, the future is never very clear, but it's extremely clear based upon our last segment that you have here that more and more challenges are going to come from consumers expecting and demanding more immediate access to higher levels of whatever product they want. Uh, direct access is becoming an expected outcome instead of something that is very rare. And if that pressure continues, at the same time that our legislative bodies and policymakers keep determining that alcohol is a very controlled substance and needs to be controlled and regulated, that pressure point is going to create a very hard future, possibly job security for you and I, but a very hard future for our retailers. Scott, I'll add to that a little bit, and I've already talked about e-commerce, but e-commerce marketing uh, will only continue to get bigger. Uh, and it's ironic if you think of stores on Main Street. Uh, the big box stores ran the mom and pop stores out of business years ago. Big box is now threatened by online sales, such as Amazon that we mentioned, and they're huge. Now we are also looking at those operations uh, getting into the brick and mortar business. Uh, so, so now online e-commerce, commerce, like I say, is purchasing brick and mortar and taking over the space, spaces previously held by other big box operations. So the old saying, you know, what goes around comes around is definitely coming true uh, for a lot of retail operations around the country. Well, I um, I thank you for that, Warren. And as we are, are close to our end here, I think our listeners can understand why I said that you would be able to give a perspective on the struggles independent alcohol beverage retailers are facing. You know, the character of our communities are shaped by the businesses within them. So the fate of local retailers really has an impact well beyond the owner operators and their employees. Um, so there's a lot at stake for the outcome of this struggle. Um, I want to thank you both for joining us this afternoon and for lending your insights to this important topic. And Fred? thank you, Scott, as well, very much. Um, as a personal confession, when I started in this field 30 years ago, first as an advocate, I believe that the problem we were addressing of underage sales could be solved just by being tougher on the retailer. You know, revoke a few licenses and everyone else will get the message to check IDs. But as an advocate, I made the fatal error of getting to know the retailers and to recognize how much more complex their challenges can be. Later at Brandeis, I made the retailer the focus of my own research and, and that led to the founding of the Responsible Retailing Forum. And next week, our program will be co-hosted by Charles Curry, the former director of the Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration, who will explore how drinking affects us individually with his guest, Dr. Monica Gurevich, who will help us make some sense out of the contradictory research and reports on whether and how alcohol can promote health and how to make sensible decisions for ourselves. This is Brad Crever thanking you for joining Alcohol Across America. Thank you for joining us this week for Alcohol Across America. Please join Dr. Brad Crever and another weekly guest expert next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until our next program, be safe and have a great week.